From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio, science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally. This past spring, paleontologists discovered a rare fossil bone bed thanks to the lowering water levels in Lake Powell. The catch was they had to get these fossils safely out before the water in Lake Powell rose again. We will talk with Andrew Milner, site paleontologist and curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site about this amazing fossil discovery. Then, does Utah really have the greatest snow on Earth? We will find out from Jim Steenberg, a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah and author of the book, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. Stay tuned for these two guests when we return. You're listening to Cool Science Radio. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Yes, the lowering waters in Lake Powell this past year were cause for concern for many. But if you were a paleontologist documenting fossil track sites along the newly exposed shorelines of Lake Powell, you found significant reasons to celebrate the lake's receding waterline. This past spring, paleontologists discovered a rare fossil bone bed within one of the exposed layers. The catch was, they had to get these fossils safely out before the water in Lake Powell rose again. Here to tell us about this amazing discovery and their work saving the fossils from being once again submerged is Andrew Milner, site paleontologist and curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site. Andrew, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Great, thank you for having me. All right, you discovered the first, now forgive me if I get this wrong, I'm taking a chance here, tritilodontal bone bed in the Navajo sandstone. Did I get that right? Close, tritylodonts. Tritylodont, that, that's much better. All right, so what is a tritylodont? So tritylodonts are a group of uh, synapsids, which include the mammals uh, and animals uh, like the pelicosaurs. So animals like Dimetrodon that you have often been mistaken as dinosaurs. But uh, tritylodonts are almost mammals. So they're they're in this lineage that are extremely close uh, to modern mammals. So they they probably split off sometime in the late Permian or, or early Triassic. And uh, tritylodonts, um, one of the main characteristics that separate them from true mammals is the back of the jaw. So there's a bone called the quadrate in the skull, which articulates with the with the articular in the back of the jaw. And that you don't see that characteristic in mammals. They also have deep roots uh, on the teeth, like modern mammals, so making them similar. They have a large sagittal crest and a big opening at the back of the skull to accommodate large muscles for the jaws. Uh, the teeth in the front of the skull, they're what we call procumbent incisors. Uh, they lack canines, so procumbent incisors mean that they, they're projected more forward. So very anterior facing, um, and they have no incisors. And then they have teeth we call post-canine teeth. And post-canine teeth have got sets of three cusps arranged in rows from side to side and back to back in the upper jaw, and three front to back in the lower jaw, and two side to side as well. So they kind of grind against each other, so probably chewing up plant material. They were suggested to be burrowers, and they they first appear on the scene in the late Triassic and disappear in the early Cretaceous. 
Well, in the press release that was sent out, it says that these fossils, because I'm not going to try and say that again, are so rare, are very rare to be found in the Navajo sandstone. What makes them so rare, specifically within the Navajo sandstone? Well, the Navajo sandstone is, represents one of the largest sand seas on the planet. There are lots of footprints in the Navajo, and that's one of the reasons why we went to Lake Powell with low water, was to look for more track sites with, with the low water conditions. Um, anyway, the Navajo sandstone bone sites are extremely rare. You can count, you can count all of the known sites on both hands. So there's, there's less than 10 localities. Most of the sites that are known for the Navajo bone sites are usually articulated skeletons or associated skeletons, and they're usually only find, found as single indivi individuals. Uh, they mostly occur in southeastern uh, Utah and, and north central Arizona. So bones, like I said, bones are super rare. And in this particular case, we found multiple animals preserved in, in what appear to be burrows, so a really rare occurrence. We not only found one bone bed, but we found a second bone bed in April when we returned to, to quarry the first site. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with paleontologist Andrew Milner. He's the site paleontologist and curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site, and we're talking about the tritol... <laughs> Oh, I was going to get it. Tritilodont. 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 Um, that was found in the receding waters of Lake Powell. Let's talk a little bit, Andrew, about Lake Powell itself. It was filled, it was dammed and then filled in 1966. And in the last probably 10 or 15, 20 years, it's been, it's been going down as we've become drier and probably hit an all-time low in the last couple of years. And I'm wondering, A, what was it like before 1966 in terms of paleontological finds and digs in that area? And what has it been like since? So prior to 19, uh, the 1966, um, of course, Glen Canyon, super deep canyon, um, must have been spectacular at the time uh, before it was filled. I know of many amazing archaeological sites that are submerged. And there were a few track sites that have been reported prior to this, but very little was done in terms of paleontology in Glen Canyon itself. So with the filling of the lake, it actually gave us more access to the canyon, uh, getting, getting back into outcrops and also higher elevation in the canyon into areas that we probably never would have had the opportunity to look, to, to look at. So the locality that we discovered was situated about 3,500 feet above sea level. So uh, this particular site would have first been submerged in 1968. It was recently, the most recent exposure of the beds would have been in March of 2022. And then again in March of 2023 when we arrived at the lake. So that's 54 years these per this particular site, the first site that we discovered was submerged. And in a way, well, let me ask you this, has the technology and the ability to preserve and or extract and preserve and study these fossils, has it changed enough in those 54 years that it's kind of nice that it was waiting there for you and your teammates? 
Yeah, so it, it was, uh, I wouldn't say technology's changed too much other than the in, in terms of collecting stuff. I mean, you know, we've got better equipment to get us around and helicopters and boats, but definitely improvements include things like rock saws and jackhammers, which definitely make it a little bit easier to get get stuff out and remove extra rock that we don't need. But a lot of the techniques are still very much the same in terms of encasing fossils and plaster jackets, uh, you know, dipped in burlap to protect the specimens for transport uh, back to the museum. Give us the story of how you came across these fossils. I mean, what were you doing leading up to it? And what was it like when you see this bone bed, an unexpected bone bed? So we'd arrived the day before. We could only bring one boat out and it was our first day on the lake and the wind was really strong. So the park decided to only send one boat kind of late afternoon. So there were four of us on the boat, including boat driver, Donnie Plasman, who was um, a park ranger. And uh, there were two other paleontologists with us and a GIS person from the University of Colorado at Denver. And we pulled up on this beach and we did a little bit of prospecting after setting up camp the following morning. So Donnie had placed the toilet, our field toilet, around this little, in this little tiny alcove. And uh, seven o'clock in the morning, I got up and was walking across this limestone bed. So basically these limestones represent lakes and ponds in between sand dune sequences. So an ancient uh, pond, pond deposit. So I'm walking across the surface and I'm seeing all these funny looking circular depressions, didn't know what they were, maybe footprints. And there were tracks as well, but not very well preserved. Nothing were really worth recording. Anyway, I used the facilities and on my way back, I decided to walk below the ledge. Not 20 feet away from the toilet, I noticed this rock with all of these unusual brown stains on it from a distance. And I went, oh, that's different. I thought it was maybe plant material. I walked up to it and I couldn't believe it. There were complete limb bones and ribs and vertebrae. I, I was in denial. I, I walked back to my tent. I grabbed my hand lens and came back. Uh, the vision's not, not so good as it used to be. So the hand lens definitely helped. And I confirmed it was bone. And that's when I started celebrating, jumping around, freaking out, yelling to the rest of the crew. Uh, Vin Santucci from the, the National Park Service, um, the senior paleontologist there, he pulls up in his boat. And the first thing I said to him was, I think I just made one of the biggest discoveries of my life. So yeah, it was super exciting. Well, that's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Then you add on that water levels were starting to rise again. And you had, what was 100, 120 days to get all of that out. What was that like? Because most paleontological digs can go for years and years as you slowly, you know, extract the bones. But you had, what, three months, four months to get it out? Not even. We had about two weeks. Oh. So, yeah, the lake level was rising while we were there. So this, we were starting off our field work. So we still had another week and a half of field work before I could even get back to the office and start working on an excavation permit. So what we did at the first site is we salvaged all of the loose blocks and we've documented everything quite well where the, where the blocks were located. Um, uh, we took lots of lots of lots of pictures so we could write a write a report and apply for a National Park Service excavation permit at Glen Canyon 
incredible job by the Park Service getting a perm an excavation permit pushed ahead so quickly. When we discovered the site, it was maybe 20 feet above water. When we returned, it was about 15. So we were two two weeks later, we were back back at the site and starting to quarry. Uh, we brought on board um, Dr. Adam Marsh, uh, the lead paleontologist for Petrified Forest National Park. Adam is a, a specialist in the Glen Canyon group as well as the Ch the Chinle Formation. So on the in, basically in the rocks that we're working on and rocks that I also specialized here in southwestern Utah. And we also had Julissa Buschwitz, who's our uh, deputy curator here at SGDS, and also our prep lab manager, Hunter Carter. And um, anyway, we started quarrying the site. Now I mentioned those circular depressions. So we started pounding on this upper ledge, thick ledge with a sledgehammer because we didn't think there was anything in it. We just want, needed it out of the way to get to the, all the bones and the layers below. This piece of rock popped off when I was banging on it with an eight pound sledge. It landed upside down and I could see an art, there was an articulated skeleton with the skull, the backbone, ribs, the one of the forelimbs. It was laying there below this depression. We flipped the big block over and there were more articulated skeletons on the underside. So we now believe these circular depressions are likely burrows and the bones are kind of concentrated in a certain pattern. So all the bones in the layers below. So we believe these animals probably died in their burrows and were, were maybe, maybe some of them might be the articulated animals near the top could have been buried alive. So we quarried for about four days and closed the site. We could only do so much. Uh, the bones continue into the, into the ledge. While we were there, we could see the water rising. There was a fire pit down below us. By the time we left, it was maybe 10 feet, 10 feet below. One of our volunteers returned in May and the site was completely submerged. So we had to work super fast and there's still tons of work to do there if the lake drops low enough. Right. Well, we sort of unfortunately know that it will again, or we think we, there's every indication, shall we say, that it will again. And sort of too bad that you didn't didn't find it the previous year, right? Because of all the years to discover something and this being the biggest snowfall year in, you know, recent history, knowing that that lake was going to come up. But it's interesting that it that it came well obviously it's going to come up later than you know maybe the the great salt lake or any other smaller bodies of water right and you said okay you said it was at 3500 feet above sea level you were talking about the, the water, water the, the, water. the water level okay do you know what the bottom of Glen Canyon is? How hmm. deep that canyon is? I I seem to remember. I I don't know exactly, but I'd say a good six six hundred feet in places, maybe even deeper. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. I was just trying to get a picture in my mind's eye, and then another picture in my mind's eye is the boat coming up, and this ledge that you're looking up fifteen or twenty feet. And I'm picturing a ledge and I'm I'm sort of picturing this sheer face and I'm wondering how you did it, but it's probably not what I'm picturing. It's Can you describe the scene? It, okay. It's like it, it just in this little cove, just parked on a beach. 
and the the rock ledge is only about four feet, four feet tall. So it's it's super low ledge. But up behind it, there's a big cliff, which are big sand dune sequences. So this site is between a, a lower sand dune sequence and an upper sand dune sequence. So Andrew, after you, so you've had to quarry them out, get them on the boat. What happened after that? So we needed to measure a stratigraphic section. So looking at all of the layers in detail, so we can talk about deposition and interpret the environment a little bit better. So we started measuring down in the Kianta Formation um, out of Marsh and I. And um, anyways, we're, we're making our way up and we're getting close to the top of the Kianta Formation. Adam, some distance away from me, so you've got to kind of follow these beds and trace them laterally um, to see if they pinch out or whatever. Anyway, so all of a sudden, Adam yells, I got bone. And sure enough, he discovered a second bone bed, which is in more Kienta-like deposits rather than Navajo. So this is a, this is an older bed, a bone bed, even though it's slightly higher in elevation. So the beds where we found these sites, they're all dipping towards the south. So as you head north, we can see almost identical outcrops where we found the bone beds um, going up above the high watermark of Lake Powell. So with this discovery, um, like I've mentioned, these certain characteristics in these in these interdunal uh, pond and lake deposits, we have a new search image for, for what to look for in terms of bones. Well, so much of the talk and everything I've read has been about the Navajo sandstone. Tell our listeners what Navajo sandstone is and what formations that we can see commonly in Southern Utah that are the best representations of Navajo sandstone. The Navajo sandstone represents a giant sand sea. It's suggested to have been the largest on, on the planet. And so it would have looked like the modern Sahara. So below that, so this is in a unit called the Glen Canyon Group. And the Glen Canyon Group is subdivided into different rock formations based on characteristics of the rocks. So in southwestern Utah, we have the Monarvi Formation, which is the lowest. And as you move towards the east, this transitions into what's called the Wingate Sandstone, which was a smaller sand sea, the Wingate Earth, um, very, again, like the Sahara. You move above that, then we get all of these braided river systems and playas, so open open flats and very arid climate. All these rivers flowing from the southeast towards the northwest, generally depositing pile tons of sediment um, in southwestern Utah, close to 3,000 feet of, of sediment deposited in the Kienta Formation. And as you move to the to the east in the Kienta Formation, it becomes more sandy and much thinner. So you're definitely starting to see a, a desert developing. And what happens with the uh, kind of in, in central and eastern Utah, you're getting this de desert developing. And what happens is you're getting this intertonguing between the, the river systems of the Kianza and the dune deposits of the Navajo. So they're starting to combine. So it's con continuous deposition of, 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 this, of this sediment. So, Andrew, whether in the Navajo sandstone or in the Kayenta formation, you you might be finding the same things because the like the two areas are sort of overlapping in some way. It's, yes. It doesn't suggest a certain time period necessarily. 
Right. So the, the rocks that we're finding there are estimated to be 195 to about 100, up to 180 million as you get towards the top of the Navajo sandstone. So we're starting to get into the the very end of the early Jurassic, uh, moving into the middle Jurassic. So what now? Um, uh, you know, where are the fossils that you removed? Are they in St. George? Are they up here in the Salt Lake area? And what is going on with them? So all of the blocks are stored here in St. George at the moment. We're doing a little bit of preparation. Uh, one of our volunteers, uh, Craig Morgan, is an amazing micro fossil preparator. So he's working on them underneath the microscope, carefully removing matrix. So what, what we're discovering is the bone in the blocks on the edges is breaking down. It breaks down. It's extremely soft. So the density of the bone and the rock is extremely similar making it very difficult to prepare. But as we get back into fresher rock, the bone prepares a lot easier. Uh, so it's more durable, uh, which makes sense. What we're looking to do though, instead of doing mechanical preparation is uh, CT scanning the blocks. We did take all of the blocks apart from the 300 pound block. We took them up to uh, the South Jordan uh, Health Center, University of Utah. And um, we, we scanned the blocks with the help of Michelle Moore, the CT tech there. And not every, the scans were not great being a medical scanner, but there's hope. So some of the blocks, the discovery block, for example, we can see at least four three-dimensional skulls inside the blocks. So it's extremely exciting um, to see that. So the next step is to take them to Sandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque where they have a really amazing scanner. And uh, we're, we're looking to CT scan the blocks there and hit them with a lot more radiation, hopefully with, for better result. Then the plan is to segment out all of the bones from within the blocks rather than mechanically preparing them. Mm, that's so exciting. The lesson of look at your surroundings when you visit the Groover is just keeps playing in my head. <laughs> um, I, I wondering, and as as you keep talking about these blocks, I'm I'm picturing, and this is a very layman sort of question, but you know you have to sort of shear down and grab you know something that creates the block, and I'm picturing what if you're sawing through bone at that point, and I'm sure that a block in my mind, which I'm thinking about like a an ice block. It's very block-ish. I'm sure these blocks do not look like that. So the discovery block is about a foot by a foot, uh, pretty much like a, like a square, and it's about six inches thick. The upper upper ledge, luckily, so the, the site, all of the, the rocks are jointed, so they're all separated by about two to three feet thick uh, in width. Uh, the upper ledge is about about two to three feet thick. So you've got to use the hammers and chisels and pry bars to get the stuff removed. And then, of course, then the rock saws to trim blocks. But we had to make a decision on what we call the A block. And I actually did have to rock saw through some tritylodons. It's not the first time I've cut through a critter with Jim Kirkland at UGS. I've, I've actually cut a dinosaur in half. 
I've cut through dinosaur footprints. I've cut a phytosaur skull. It it happens. So yeah, and you got those clues for right. Yeah, sometimes you've got to make a sacrifice. In this case, I didn't know that I was cutting through bone, but I expected we would. A lot of the pieces so a block, you know, it's generally small, but it can be large. So. Well, a Andrew Milner, first of all, congratulations on this find of the tri. Oh my goodness. Mike Tyler. <laughs> Congratulations on the new fossil find. We'll just leave it at that. Um, you are also the curator at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site. Will you have some of these fossils there for people to come see? Yes, we have. Um, we have a, a couple of the specimens on display in the lobby of the museum. So along with the tritylodon skull. So. Well, great. So go see your tritylodon. Oh goodness, never mind. Go see these new fossils. Check out the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site. And Andrew, thank you again for joining us on Cool Science Radio. I know you've been really busy because this is a global story. So if you find yourself in St. George this winter, go by and see the Tritylodonts. There, I did it. Stay tuned for Jim Steberg and we'll learn about the greatest snow on earth. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Yes, we here in Utah like to claim that we have the greatest snow on earth, but do we really? What is it that makes our snow so great? Is it the Great Salt Lake or maybe the topography of the Wasatch Mountains? Well, here to share with us the secrets of the greatest snow on earth is Dr. Jim Steenberg, Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Utah. He's an award-winning teacher and leading authority on the weather and climate of the Wasatch Mountains, instructor of the very popular course, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, and author of the new book of the same name. Jim, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Great to be here. In that intro, I said greatest snow on Earth about, you know, six times, but take us back to the first time that someone thought up the greatest marketing slogan ever. Wasn't it back in the 60s? Yeah, it was back around 1960. It's actually an interesting story. When I wrote the book, I, I thought it would be good to include the history of the phrase greatest snow on earth. And some people might remember that the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus sued the state of Utah. So I thought I would find out about history there. You know, there was a big lawsuit. The lawyers would have been looking into it, but it turned out they never really figured out who came up with the phrase. So I called around to a few friends and they they told me that they thought that Mike Karolagos would know what the history of it was. And Mike was a former writer for the Salt Lake Tribune, worked for the Olympic Committee. And so I, I had put off calling him, put off calling him, and I was at a function at the Utah Museum of Natural History. And who's standing next to me but somebody with a name tag, he said Mike Karolagos. So I, was, I got all excited. I introduced myself to him and he told me his brother came up with it. And it turns out he was right. I called his brother up and talked to him for a while. And he said, yeah, he was a writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. And the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus was in town. And I thought, greatest show, show on earth, greatest snow on earth. He wrote a whole article about it in 1960. So that's that's where the phrase came from. And you're right. I mean, it's one of the most successful uh, marketing slogans, I think, in the outdoor industry. So do you know what became of the case? Yeah, Utah won. I mean, it, they, yeah, I mean, they found that the, uh, the phrase greatest snow on earth did not dilute. In fact, it may have even helped the greatest mm -hmm. show on earth. So good for, good for the state of Utah. Absolutely. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Jim Steenberg. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences and author of the book, The Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. And it's also a class that he teaches every year. 
All right, Jim, reading through your book, I was kind of shocked to find out that it's not the salt evaporating from the Great Salt Lake that enters into the snowpack that gives us the best powder. What is it then? Yeah, it's not what people think it is. Utah does not get exceptionally dry snow. That's what a lot of people think. But like places like a lot of places in Colorado get drier snow than Utah. It has nothing to do with the salt from the Great Salt Lake or from the West Desert or anything like that. It, it really comes down to three things. First, we get a lot of snow. I mean, there are places in the world that get drier snow, but we get fairly dry snow, but we get a lot of it. And we're in this magical transitional snow climate, not quite in the continental areas of Colorado. They get a lot less snow than we do. So first, we get a lot of snow. Second, we get a lot of what I call Goldilocks storms. These aren't too big. They're not too small. They're just right. If you want to ski deep powder, you want something like 10 to 20 inches of snow. If you get less than that, you get dust on crust, we call it. You're riding on the underlying snow surface. And when you start getting over, say, two feet of snow, the avalanche hazard's too dangerous. Like if you go to the Sierras, for example, they get a lot of snow there, but their storms are enormous and you really can't take full advantage of the snowfall. So we've got that. We've got the Goldilocks storms. We've got, so we got a bunch of snowfall, the Goldilocks storms. And then we have a situation where our climate favors lots of these right side up snowfalls, we call them. They start off with higher density snow to start, and then the snow gets drier with time. And that's optimal for ski flotation. So if you're looking for like a great situation for deep powder skiing, the Cottonwood Canyons in particular, they really got it because of those three things. As somebody who's never skied outside the Wasatch back or front, what is it like to ski in these other areas as compared to what you would find at Park City or Alta on a really great powder day? But it really depends on where you go. If you go to like the Tetons, for example, you're going to find really good skiing there too. Their snow climate's pretty similar to ours. Other places that have really good powder skiing climates include, for example, interior British Columbia, you know, the Selkirk Mountains, the friends of mine that are as snobby or snobbier than I am about their snow. That's one of the places they like to go to. And then Japan gets a lot of great snow, too. But elsewhere, they just don't get as frequent of deep powder days, for example. They don't have as deep of a snowpack. There's a lot of things that might go against them in terms of being a great place to ski deep powder on a regular basis. You can still get good deep powder skiing. You know, I lived in Innsbruck, Austria for when I was on sabbatical. I had some good powder days there, but the frequency of high quality powder days there is, is definitely lower than it is, say, here in the Cottonwoods. Well, Jim, I wanted to ask you about, you were a Fulbright scholar uh, for six months in Innsbruck at the University of Innsbruck, and you learned a lot about the snowpack in the Tyrolean Alps there. And I'm curious about what you see overall in a place like that versus what you see here in the Wasatch. The Alps are this are an enormous mountain range, right? They're, they're big, they're tall, the vertical's big. Utah has some vertical, but I tell people after living in Innsbruck, the Wasatch seem a little bit smaller. So the mountains there are, are big, they're phenomenal, they're really beautiful, I love that. But the snowfall there is scant. It's it's a lot less than we get than we get here. And I was there in a pretty good snow year, but they never get the type of snowpack or the frequency of deep powder days that we do here. The other challenge in the Alps is where the tree line is and the rapid transition, say, from timberline to being in the alpine, being above tree line. And a lot of times the best snow is falling up high, but it's also windy. And so you have a lot of situations where the wind becomes a problem. So you can get great skiing in the Alps. I had a number of great days and uh, I really enjoy skiing there, but the, the snow quality and consistency is not as high as we have here in the Cottonwoods. It's just that lunch is better there. Uh, lunch is better there. <laughs> I gotta be careful what I say, I don't wanna offend anybody, but I'll just say that the people in 
the Eastern Alps, especially the Tyrolean Alps, they really know how to live. It's about a lot more than just skiing. That's right. I wanted to ask you about the Ruby Mountains because as we as we sort of survey the western, the Intermountain West, I'm trying to think of an area that would have a very similar, you know, sort of topography, but climate in terms of being dry, sort of deserty, and then you have these big mountains rising out. And the rubies seem very similar to here. And those, of course, are out by um, Winnemucca, just west of here. Yeah, the Ruby Mountains, you know, they're, they actually, if you drive up Lamoya Canyon, that's one of the major canyons uh, in the Rubies. It reminds me a lot of, of Little Cottonwood Canyon. And they are pretty similar in, in elevation, too, compared to the central Wasatch. The highest peaks are a little over 11,000 feet. But they're closer to the Sierra Nevada, and that works against them a little bit. So they still get good snow there, but they don't get as much as we do here, in part because they're tucked in a little closer to the high Sierra. And, you know, the higher part of the Sierra Nevada from Lake Tahoe south is kind of the graveyard for winter storms. Our storms have to go around that. And then, they're, you know, we're far enough downstream that the storms that sneak around the south end or around the north end of the Sierra can come in here. But the rubies are a little bit closer. So their storm frequency and diversity is lower than we have here. Still good skiing, but not, not as much natural snowfall. Well, and the rubies don't have the Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I, that first question I asked was, does the Great Salt Lake have a role? And it does, but not the salt. But it, it's a little different than other typical big lakes. Tell us about the Great Salt Lake effect. Well, the Great Salt Lake effect is really produced because of cold air moving over the warm lake. And people think it's from all the moisture being pumped into the atmosphere. But a big part of it is actually the heat being transferred from the lake into the atmosphere. Even if there wasn't any moisture transfer from the lake, you'd still get lake effect storms. And because the lake is hypersaline, the, there's actually less water transferred into the atmosphere over the Great Salt Lake than happens over freshwater bodies. So the lake is it's out there, it's important. We did a study a few years ago. We identified a whole ton of lake effect storms over about a 12 or 13 year period. And we found out it was responsible for about 6% of the winter time or the cool season, which runs from like October uh, into May precipitation at Snowbird. It's a smaller number than people think. And it could be that if you went back to the 1980s when the lake was a lot bigger, that that number would be higher. Right now we're smaller though. So the lake is, is important, but it's generally not as important as people think for lake effect. It doesn't produce an enormous amount of the snow that we get around here. Well, how about our dry climate? I mean, most of us, I think, automatically assume some of the dryness of our snow is just immediately attributed to the lower humidity levels in this area. Well, you can't get snow without humidity. That's usually one of the lines I like to say. <laughs> it is true Utah is a drier climate than the Pacific coast, but it's also in the wintertime a colder climate. And one of the key predictors for snow density or the water content of snow is temperature. And that's one of the key things. I mean, we get the, the storms here that produce, you know, the lower density snow are typically temperatures, you know, Alta might be in the teens or even in the high single digits. When you get much colder than that, the snow gets to be higher density. The very coldest days at Alta, the snow can be a little bit higher density. But we're in that kind of magic temperature regime where getting some lower density snow really matters. That's a key thing. The, if the air is too dry, then you don't get snow. That's the, that's the problem. And so you have to, the temperature is one of the key predictors. Well, Jim, I know that you came from the Northeast, I think upstate New York, out here to Utah in, in the 80s. That's about the time that I got here too, but you came from where you can see through the snow 
<laughs> known as ice. <laughs> and I had never skied in the Northeast until about 10 years ago. And I was like, wow, people actually ski this. <laughs> so what's going on in the Northeast in terms of, of that snowpack and why it's that way? Yeah, I grew up in the Adirondacks. There's a lot of re reasons why things are challenging in the east. And in part, it has to do with the lower elevations and the, the prevailing storm tracks. So the, the preferred storm track there would be the so-called nor'easter storm track. These are low pressure systems that form off the U.S. east coast and they move northeastward and they produce northeasterly winds coming off the ocean. Those are what produce the largest storms in places like Vermont and New Hampshire, southern New, New York and those places. But those winds, those storms can be quite, quite windy. So wind is obviously a detriment for powder snow. It beats up the snowflakes, it densifies the snow. And uh, they can get really cold in their wake too. So it's not exactly, you know, there's powder skiing in those, but sometimes it's, it's more challenging. They also though have this second storm track of low pressure systems that track up through the Ohio River Valley and up through the Great Lakes. And those are disaster for skiing because then you're on the, the Eastern side of the storm and you get lots of warm air from the south and that warm air comes in aloft and it either rains or it causes freezing rain, which is snowflakes that have actually melted aloft and then they've fallen in the cold air that's near the surface that's below freezing and it freezes on contact with everything or they get sleet. So it's a struggle to get good snow conditions there. They get rain on snow events. The humidity is high. The wind blows. It's a tough snow climate, but they have a lot of great ski racers that come from there because they're skiing on hard snow all the time. That's right. I was wondering about last year, you know, the, the biggest season most of us have ever seen in Utah and wondering about the flows, sort of the flow coming out of the Northwest or the Southwest and how that determines what type of snow we get. I know it determines where most snowfall occurs and like Sundance Resort, for example, which usually gets the short end of the stick last year just had so much snowfall so what can you say about those two types of storms yeah there's a couple ways let me try to answer that in a couple ways first i don't completely understand why last year was totally bonkers insane i'm not ashamed to say that i i still look back at it and say thank god i lived to see that year <laughs> i mean alta getting 903 inches of snow i don't think i was I would have ever forecasted that or anticipated that. If somebody were to say, what do you think the, the best Alta could do? I might've said maybe 800 in a big year. So 903 is enormous. And you know, anyway, it was a big year from like the Sierra Nevada through central Nevada and into, into Utah. And typically we see uh, kind of these Southern storm tracks where Arizona environs are, gonna, are getting it. And then, you know, these Northern storm tracks, which go up through like Montana and Idaho. Last year it was kind of a little bit of everything and it, it was just a big season. And I, like I said, I can't completely explain it. Now, when we look locally though, and at say what the flow is doing, say we have a storm that's characterized by say southwesterly flow, you know, then the area around Mount Timpanogos and the area up around Snow Basin, the Northern Wasatch and the Southern Wasatch, you know, around Mount Timpanogos do extremely well because the crest of the mountain range is oriented perpendicular to the flow there. It cuts right across it. And that means that the atmosphere has to get forced up and over the mountains, and that's what you want to generate uh, snowfall. When we go northwesterly, then you know the cottonwoods become a favored area. The northwesterly flow st storms tend to produce tend, tend to be colder, and and hence they produce uh, lower density snow. 
But, you know, Alta still gets snow in southwesterly flow. So, like, the best storms for me for skiing are, like, a 15 or 18-incher starting off with southwesterly flow, maybe warm with some higher-density snow, and then it gets cold northwesterly flow. So you have this great right-side-up snowfall, what we call hero snow, to be able to ski. And I'm getting excited just talking about it. (laughs) Well, Jim, in the book, and I'm assuming on your class, you devote a nice chunk of the book and class to the structure of snowflakes. Why is that important to the snow we ski on? Yeah, the snow structure of snowflakes matters a, a lot in terms of how dense the snow is and, and kind of how it feels when you're skiing through it. Kind of the, what I would call a lower density type of snowflake is what we call the dendrite or a stellar dendrite. This is kind of the classic, say, holiday card snowflake with six arms that look like trees. And because of those arms, there's lots of pores in the snow. So like when those crystals kind of stack up, there's a lot of air in it. It's not just ice. And so you have, that's a lower density uh, snow. Now it's rare to have a storm that's all dendrites. And when you do get lots of undamaged dendrites, that's when you get this cold smoke, they call it less than 4% water content snow, just bone dry, right? And then those are the, usually have to have very light winds for that. And you have to have the right temperatures to get those. On the other hand, you get a lot of snowflakes that can get beaten up by the wind or they get what we call rimed, which it's kind of a strange thing, but water doesn't actually freeze at zero degrees Celsius. It's common in clouds, for example, for there to be lots of what we call supercooled liquid water. These are tiny droplets of water that are below zero degrees Celsius, colder than zero degrees, but they haven't frozen yet. But when they collide with snowflakes, they freeze on contact and they fill in all that pore space. So that gives you a higher density snow lower water content. Now the extreme of that is something we call grapple. Uh, Some people call grapple snow pellets and those are like styrofoam balls. And the funny thing about grapple is that's a higher density snow, but it actually skis really, really well. (laughs) It's the one example of a high density snow that uh, skis well. So I like skiing grapple and if it's a good grapple day, I'm pretty happy. Well, speaking of high density snow, what exactly is man-made snow? Because there's a snow gun behind my house and it blows into these massive big piles of what look like ice and then they smash it out onto the run so really what is man-made snow yeah so artificial snow is basically frozen very small frozen droplets of water and the idea with the the snow guns or cannons is to blast water out and break it up into really really small droplets and then those droplets hopefully freeze before they they reach the ground it's a very high density. Typically, artificial snow is like 20 to 28% water content. And just for comparison, the average water content of snow at Alta is 8.4%. So you could think of that as being three or more times dense compared to average wa- uh, snow that falls, say, at Alta, which has advantages and disadvantages. The big advantage is it's super durable. So, you know, if you're a ski area and you're trying to get snow to put down on the trails to you know, survive for the winter. I mean, we have high-speed six-packs now, high-speed high eight-packs, lots of people coming down the trails. That's a very durable snow surface. On the other hand, because it's so dense, when it goes through, say, a melt-freeze cycle, or maybe they blow a little bit of liquid in it, it doesn't quite all freeze, it makes for a, a harder snow surface to ski on. Like, when you ski in areas that are all natural snowpack, it always seems like it's a little more pliable, a little easier to get an edge into say, than, than an artificial snowpack. So it's a plus and minus situation, but it's in many places, it's going to be the future of skiing. I mean, climate change is having impact on an, our natural snowfall and snowpack. So 
Well, Jim, that makes me think about the artificial snow that I would ski on back in the 80s. And I'm supposing from, well, from what you're saying, it's making me think that the actual snow quality is the very same. I thought there was some technology and snowmaking that's made the snow better because it certainly is way better to ski now than it was in the 80s, but maybe it's the grooming. Yeah, no, I would think the artificial snow could be better than it used to be. I'm not an expert on artificial snow, but just for a few reasons. One is that the weather forecasts are better, so they can dial in when they do the snowmaking a little bit better than they used to do. You know, you're looking for a situation where snowmakers tend to look at what's something called the wet bulb temperature, which is the temperature after you evaporate water into the air. And um, that's a, a key thing. The snow guns are better than they used to be. In some cases, they're they're using pressurized air. There's there's a lot of reasons. And they also can put in, I don't know if they do this in Utah, but they can put in what are called ice nucleating particles. These are things that help to cause the droplets to freeze. So their technology is better than it used to be. But I would agree that this, you know, the grooming is phenomenal today compared to what it was when I was a kid. These are big, powerful machines. And I'm always, sometimes I'm amazed, you know, like I'm go up there to go skiing and I'm thinking it's going to be awful. And, you know, usually after a couple hours, when it's like that, it starts to deteriorate. But after they, that groom, they often skis really, really well. Lots of things make skiing better than it, than it used to be. Well, I'm glad that you're more of an expert on natural snow than you are artificial snow. <laughs> I've always been a fan of the um, Grand Targhee slogan, snow from heaven, not hoses. But um, <laughs> I do recognize I've been backcountry, quote, backcountry skiing this year. And both times I've gone out, it's been on artificial snow at Alta. So beggars can't be choosers. That's that's true. Hey, we were looking at this photo of Japan and it seems like I mean, what is it about Japan? Maybe it's where I, the sort of where I am in life, but it seems in the, about the last 10 years, I've heard of people going to Japan to ski. Before that, I never heard of people going to Japan to ski, but you say it's super consistent, just massive amounts of snow. Yeah, I like to say Utah is the greatest snow on earth, but Japan is the greatest snow climate on earth. It's incredible snow climate. I went to Nagano in 1998 with the Salt Lake Olympic Committee my job there was to learn about weather support for the Olympics. And then when I went in 1998, I, I had no idea how much it snowed in Japan, even as a meteorologist, um, because, you know, we didn't have the internet with people posting videos all the time. But Japan has an incredible snow climate for a few reasons. One is it's downstream or east of, you know, the Eurasian continent. That's the biggest continent in the world. And in the wintertime, it produces the strongest high pressure systems and the coldest air. And that cold air tends to bleed off the continent over the, the Sea of Japan, which is an enormous body of water. It's 12 times bigger than Lake Superior, the largest uh, Great Lake. And it has a warm current in it that keeps it pretty warm for most of the winter. So, you know, we talk, think about lake effect in Utah, maybe about 5% of our snowfall in the cottonwoods. Then you go to a place like the Great Lakes, where there's not big topography, but you can find a place like Tug Hill Plateau in upstate New York that might get 250, 280 inches of snow. But then you go to Japan where you have an enormous body of water, lots of cold air outbreaks and big topography. And then you start to see places like Sukayu Onsen on northern Honshu, which averages almost 700 inches of snow a year. And those are some of the world's deepest seasonal snowpacks. You know, places in the coastal ranges of 
British Columbia and Alaska probably get more snow and they might get deeper seasonal snowpacks, but the weather there is miserable. <laughs> but in Japan, it just keeps coming and coming. And it comes in a short period of time. Like Alta averages 500 inches of snow, but it starts snowing in October and it, their snow accumulation season runs into early May. Whereas Japan, most of the snow comes in December, January, and February. So it's a really intense snow accumulation season. Well, Jim, tell us about your class titled Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. And can the regular person take it or do they have to be enrolled at the U? Yeah, so I have a book called Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth and volume the uh, second edition just came out. It's fully updated. I wrote it about 10 years ago. If you're a meteorologist and people meet you on a the chairlift, they want to know, is it really the greatest snow on earth? And they have lots of other questions. And I thought, I'm going to write a book about this. So I did that. And then I kept thinking about doing a class. And during the pandemic, you know, when I was confined to the to my home, <laughs> I thought I'm going to write a I'm going to do a class on this. I'm going to try to figure this out and and do it. And so I worked on it for about a year. It's pretty much uses ski skiing, snowboarding, and snow as a gateway into learning about science and learning about meteorology, climate change, glaciology, even social science is embedded in there because we talk about kind of some of the society social or mental shortcuts that people take in the backcountry that sometimes get them into trouble when they're when they're trying to assess avalanche hazard. So I put all that together. It's been a very popular class. We started out with an enrollment cap, cap the first year of 150, then we went to 250, then we went to 300. For spring of 2024, we're at, we're at an enrollment cap of 450. I think my dean tells me he wants over 1,000. I told him, show me the money. <laughs> so, but it's been a fun class. I think it's a great class for the University of Utah where we have so many people who are excited about outdoors. And it's not just skiers that are taking it. People that come to the U, uh, maybe for other reasons, they might not even be skiers, want to learn about the greatest snow on earth. Like what, what's the big deal about it? So it's been a really good class, a really good class for that. That's so great. Well, Dr. Jim Steenberg, professor of atmospheric science at the University of Utah, author of this book, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, and a professor of the class by the same name, soon to be capped at a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on Cool Science Radio. It's so it's such interesting stuff. We could keep talking the rest of the day, but you know, someone's got to go skiing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me and thanks snow everybody out there.